Stay tuned now for Edward R. Murrow with the news presented by Hams, the beer refreshing. Hams is the beer that looks refreshing. Network Radio opened the fall of 1951 fresh off its third consecutive season with plummeting ratings. Only Mutual Broadcasting had no foothold in TV. The other three networks were trying to make sense of their remaining radio advertising and audience while debuting TV features. Unsure of what sponsors would remain loyal to their radio side of business, they commissioned studies on the continuing potential of radio advertising. No study was needed to understand that TV was taking listeners and converting them into viewers, especially in urban and suburban areas. Good evening. The big news tonight is, of course, in Britain, where returns are now coming in on the British national elections. Edward R. Murrow is standing by in London to bring you his report on this day's voting. We take you now direct to London and Edward R. Murrow. This is London. The polls closed in Britain's national election about four hours ago. Here is the way the parties stand at the moment. We have 100 results out of 625. The Labour Party have won 56. The Conservatives, 43. And the Liberals, won. The refrain all evening as the reports have come in from the constituencies has been, no change, no change. In 1948, radio's most listened to show, the Lux Radio Theater, had a rating of 31.2. Just four years later, Lux, still the highest rated show, was down to 13.9. NBC, CBS, ABC, and the Mutual Broadcasting System saw top 50 radio ratings fall into single digits for the first time. These early returns, of course, are in no sense conclusive. Executives preached efficiency. Their focus was getting the most bang for their campaign bucks in print, radio, and TV. By 1951, the networks had begun to sell commercial spots within shows, rather than offer programs for single advertiser sponsorship. His predictions in the past have had a consistent record of accuracy. While we're used to it today, for the first time a listener could hear something like a car commercial in one spot, then a soap commercial in the next. And that was only at the national level. As the network's infrastructure expanded to accommodate TV, their ability to direct programming to even more granular combinations of towns, cities and regions created new possibilities for radio advertisers. At the regional level, major ad agencies were often block sharing or time slicing with local businesses. Simultaneously, programming had shifted from big audience shows to smaller sound studios. During World War II, comedy, drama, news and variety dominated the radio dial. But after the war, detective shows gained network popularity. Tonight we'll focus on a man who had a long career on stage, in Hollywood, and as a radio detective. His name was William Gargan, and we'll spotlight his last radio series, Barry Craig, Confidential Investigator. Uh, they seem to have done at least as well as the ordinary Labour candidate, and in fact there is some indication that... Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 142. My name is James Scully. 
Tonight on Breaking Walls, we feature one of Brooklyn's native sons, Bill Gargan, who made more than 60 films and good money on radio in the 1950s. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Our winning song is The Man with the Golden Arm by Elmer Bernstein. It's the title track from an incredible film of the same name and a fitting riff for the detective genre. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash the wallbreakers. And the first eight chapters of Burning Gotham are out everywhere you can get a podcast and at burninggotham.com. It was a 2022 official Tribeca Film Festival audio selection. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash the wallbreakers. Quit your kidding me. <laughs> Jones? Radio gun, sir. You read it. Eight and a half pound boy. May I inquire the cause of these acrobatics? I'm sorry, sir. Answer my question, Lieutenant. Uh, Perhaps this will explain, sir. Lieutenant Jones, we reach San Diego in 30 days. See that you control your emotions until then. Yes, sir. And, uh, congratulations. Thank you, sir. William Dennis Gargan was born to an Irish-American Catholic family in Brooklyn, New York, on July 17, 1905. His parents, Bill and Irene, had seven children, but only Bill and his brother Ed survived infancy. Ed was four years older than Bill. The pair were close. Bill's mother had been a teacher, but his father was a bookmaker and gambler, which didn't sit well with Irene's parents. Gargan's dad made book in the copy room at the New York World and in room nine of City Hall. The four-story brownstone they lived in at 427 Henry Street in Brooklyn Heights was won in a poker game. Today, PS29 stands on the site. Bill got his first silent movie job at age seven for Vitagraph Studios. He was paid $3.85. 
that's roughly $120 today. It portended things to come. By 10, Bill was hanging out at his father's bar in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. Both parents had good senses of humor. Gargan later said that his mother was more straight-laced, a bit of a prude on the surface. But in reality, she ran with his dad all her life and his. He grew up going to Seagate in the summer and fighting for the Irish kids from Bay Ridge against the Italian kids in empty lots. He played baseball and basketball for St. Francis Xavier Grade School and St. James High. And he ditched school in the spring to scale the Ebbetsfield Wall to watch the Dodgers and their stars of the 1910s. When he was 14 and working as an ice brusher at the Prospect Park skating rink, Gargan met a girl named Mary Elizabeth Kenny. He was so taken by her that he used his broom to knock her down. Gargan later recalled that she got up, her eyes spitting fire, and her mouth not doing badly either. I knew I was in love. They hung out at Feltman's in Coney Island, at Lundy's in Sheepshead Bay, or at Lowe's Metropolitan and Keith's Prospect. They were later married on January 19, 1928 in Baltimore. Gargan loved the theater. By high school, he was playing in school productions of Hamlet, Macbeth, and Romeo and Juliet. However, a teacher who'd been out to get Bill for his comedic behavior made life so miserable during Bill's senior year that he dropped out. Gargan became a message runner for a Broad Street brokerage firm, then a cop for a clothing store, then one for a Wall Street agency, until he was fired for losing a tail. He sold Wesson oil to grocers, sneaking away to watch plays. One day the lights went up, and Bill noticed his boss was sitting next to him. Good show, Gargan said. You're fired, said his boss. Bill's brother Ed was an actor. While having lunch one day with Ed, a man named Leroy Clemens mentioned to Bill that a play he'd written was having tryouts. Bill read a line and was hired, beginning his career in Aloma of the South Seas. They opened in Baltimore in 1924. Gargan was a quick study, learning everyone's parts as well as the stage managers. Within a year, he was directing the Philadelphia production of the play. Aloma of the South Seas ran for 40 weeks. Growing up with one foot on the streets helped. Gargan recalled that years later he was playing in Chicago when a man tried to shake him down for a protection racket. Bill refused. A few weeks later he was out drinking when someone slipped him a Mickey and stole his wallet. The next week, the same man was at the theater saying, I told you you needed protection. So Bill called his father. Then Bill got a phone call. He was ushered to a top floor suite at the Lexington Hotel. Al Capone sat behind a desk. Capone said the guy wasn't one of his own and asked Gargan to point the man out the next time Bill saw him at the theater. Soon Bill was called to meet with Capone again. Capone had Bill's wallet and money no one ever shook Bill down again. Gargan spent the next years playing all over the country with people like George Jessel and Richard Bennett. Jessel would be godfather to Bill's first son, Bill Jr., affectionately known as Barry. Barry was born on February 25, 1929. After the stock market crashed, Bill got a short-term job on stage in New York, where he met William Bendix. Soon a casting director at Paramount called, and after that, Leslie Howard cast Bill in a play. Bill later said that Leslie helped make him a star. In 
that same year, on January 12, 1932. Gargan opened at the Broadhurst Theater in New York with Leslie Howard in Philip Barry's The Animal Kingdom. Even with the Depression, it was a smash hit. Simultaneously, Gargan filmed His Woman for Paramount and Queens with Claudette Colbert and Gary Cooper. His success led MGM to call. They offered him the part of Sergeant O'Hara in the 1932 feature Rain, starring Joan Crawford and Walter Houston. He'd be paid $1,500 per week. That's over thirty-three grand today. Bill bought out his contract with the Animal Kingdom, playing on May 2nd for the last time. The next morning, Bill, Mary, and young Barry left for Hollywood. Rain was shot on Catalina Island. Hello, Mama. How's it by you today? Hello, Yohara. Kind of cheery this morning, ain't we? Come on, give me a lift. Oh, we got it now. Evil! Now right, tell us, Mama. Where's the old man? What do you want, huh? Cigarettes. Cigarettes no got ya. That's just it. Where's Horn? Asleep, huh? Well, we'd have that bird on his feet and down to the docks, Jap Jap Prado. I think so, no. I think so, yes. Get him, boys. What's the matter, Mama? The old man acting up again? How you talk? What do you say? My husband is a very good man. What's all this? What's all this? Relax. Where am I? Home. To be sure. The Arduna's in, Joe. Well, what of it? No caricone, no sardine, no peaches, no corned beef. And no cigarettes. On your feet, mate. Fall in. Wait, wait. <laughs> Much too early in the morning for life, Burton. Right there, Jim. Oh, well, if I must, I must. <laughs> 